almost breaking even and then some we were losing money but it was an investment because we needed to get it on the heads of all of these women you're listening to side hustle pro the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business and i'm your host nikayla matthews okome so let's get started Today in the guest chair, we have Tracy Pickett, founder of Hairbrella. Hairbrella is an innovative rain hat combining fashion and function to protect women's hair from the rain. Hairbrella was launched on Kickstarter and was successfully funded in December 2016. Since then, this passionate entrepreneur, attorney, inventor, and speaker has invested her money time, blood, sweat, and tears into bringing Hairbrella from an idea and prototype to fully developed product on the market. In today's episode, you will hear how Tracy began her legal career at a Fortune 5 technology company working in the areas of corporate and intellectual property law. And you'll also hear that she was an attorney by day and spent nights and weekends developing her passion for entrepreneurship. In 2014, she launched her first entrepreneurial venture, Eboticon, a media design company with a mission to create dynamic and culturally relevant emojis for niche social groups. Then in November 2016, Tracy left her job to lead Eboticon full-time and to launch her second entrepreneurial venture, which was Hairbrella. In today's episode, Tracy breaks down the financial investments she made to patent and prototype Hairbrella how she used early user feedback to continue to develop and improve her product, and how she pushed past the earliest challenges in her business to make a product that is stylish and also works. Let's get right into it. All right. So welcome to the guest chair, Tracy. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Appreciate you being here. So first things first, Give us a peek into your background, the life of Tracy. Who are you and what was your first experience with side hustling? Yeah, so uh, I'm a native of Atlanta with Spelman and UGA for law school. Um, I a lawyer by trade, uh, but always had a passion for entrepreneurship and uh, decided to get you know law school out of the way, got a job. And then uh, the entrepreneurial bug started, you know, uh, kind of tapping on my shoulder. Um, and I decided to um, band together with some colleagues, uh, three other co-founders to basically what was really intended to be a test, uh, to test one of my ideas that I had formulated, you know, a couple of years prior called Eboticon. And that was uh, going to be a, a emoji app that uh, represented our culture, which at the time we didn't even have like skin tones for emojis. <laughs> so um, I was like, this is one of the ideas I have. Let's, let's, let's test it out. Let's put it out there. Um, and we did that on nights and weekends after I left my job. So I, I would you know, drive to Alpharetta on the way back. We would stop at one of my co-founders apartments in Buckhead and we developed this app and, and I'll put $2,000 in to, to see if it would fly. And so that was that was the beginning of this journey. Wow. I love that you said, you you know, decided to get law school out the way <laughs> as if it wasn't, you know, a three year program. <laughs> right. um, but what, what made you pursue law? Yeah. So I uh, as a kid, um, my dad is a pastor and uh, it's funny, like we went to a church one time and I was sitting in the pew with him and this lady walked in who was one of the public defenders uh, in, in Fulton County. And he tapped me and was like, she's a lawyer. And I was like, 
oh, like, that's a big deal. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, okay, I want to be a lawyer because I want to be important. I want to be somebody that my dad would, like, point out. I didn't want to be a pastor, but that sounded like it had some of the same weight. <laughs> so, um, And then my godmother was also an attorney. Um, and I heard they made a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, people used to tell me, too, like, hey, you would make a great lawyer because I would... Um, always require that things are fair amongst my, you know, my sister and my friends. So anyway, it was kind of one of those things that was kind of imposed and I thought, Hey, not a bad idea. So that's why I went down that road, uh, initially. And also, uh, I'm a musician. So I've been playing drums since I was 12 years old. And a lot of my musician friends ended up, you know, going on to play for pretty much every artist you can think of. And I'm like, I'll just be the friend that became the lawyer and can, and can help them. Uh, so Wanted to go into entertainment law, you know, help creative people um, and still feel like, you know, in a way I, I still uh, enjoy doing that. But that's how I initially got into law. So interesting. I love hearing all the multi passions um, mm-hmm. that everyone has now. So you start Emoticon with some friends. You're doing this, you know, after after work each day. What was that initial two thousand dollar investment from each of you guys for? Yeah, so that was for actually coding the app. Um, and then getting our initial library of emoji and they were gifts. So, um, we got an animator to, uh, create them for us and, and do all the artwork. And then of course, you know, all the backend platform stuff that we needed to get it. Uh, we actually started with just 12 emojis. <laughs> so let's talk about the pivot, the pivot from law, the pivot from Emoticon. What inspired you to do that? Um, some, you know, two years after going in on that venture, what inspired you to start Hairbrella and pivot from law and Emoticon? Yeah, so I actually wrote a letter to myself the summer before I went to law school. I still have, well, it was an email, an email form. Um, And I said, hey, Tracy, you have all of these great ideas that you want to pursue, but you're about to go to law school and need to stay focused. So uh, promise me that you will not spend more than five years in full-time legal career without pursuing these. Um, and at the time I didn't have the idea for Hairbrella, but I had something similar to the idea for Ebodicon. And I, uh, literally just kept myself to that promise. Um, so in pursuing Ebodicon, uh, that was one idea that I felt like I could develop while I was still working mm-hmm. um, and one that I had co-founders to help me with. Um, it wasn't long after that that I got the idea for Hairbrella and I started working on the patent for that almost immediately. Um, and so in the background of doing Ebodicon, I was also very slowly uh, iterating on um, Hairbrella. And then I ended up leaving my job on my fifth anniversary, like literally the day. <laughs> wow. Um, and I worked all the way up until that point to kind of get ready for, you know, what I knew was coming my deadline. Um, and I also paced myself to complete kind of, you know, the first version that I could go out and test of Hairbrella um, and then launched a Kickstarter campaign uh, right after leaving my job you know, with Hairbrella's, you know, prototype in hand, uh, ready to launch. Uh, Ebodicon was doing pretty well. We were getting some bigger contracts. So I felt confident about at least supporting the team through Ebodicon. And then I saved a year's worth of income um, so that I can give myself a little runway mm-hmm. um, to, to, you know, be able to push both, the, both of those um, having, 
left my job. All right. Now, yeah. I love that you mentioned patent and you mentioned prototype. Let's talk a little bit more about those things. So sure. when you had the idea for um, Hairbrella, did you initially start developing a patent? And what is required for you to even file for a patent? I wanted to make sure I could protect the idea right. before I would pour a lot of money into the development. Um, and in terms of what you need initially, it really is just about searching to see what's out there already. Um, a lot of that you can do on your own. And then I went to a, uh, um, a firm that could help me to do uh, the provisional uh, patent application. Um, and that required for me to get someone to do some technical drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of put together a makeshift version of it with <laughs> beanies and shower caps. <laughs> tried to describe to them what I thought it should look like. Right. And then I went back and forth with a contractor who I just found online mm-hmm. uh, who helped me to create the initial drawings and then sent that over to the firm. And, you know, they made some updates to that just to make sure I provide enough detail. Um, and then you have a year after that you know, to file the full patent application is really interesting story um, about that because, you know, the provisional only costs, you know, about a hundred bucks. And of course, whatever you spend with the contractors. Um, But then uh, (laughs) when you do the full application, that can be 1800, 2400, it costs a whole lot more. Um, And being, you know, still in school, I said, hey, there's no way that I'm going to be able to um, just throw money at this for no reason. Like, let me, God, give me a sign if I'm supposed to use all my little savings on this patent application. Um, and the night before I had the deadline to end for my, uh, provisional, I got, uh, I went to a restaurant, uh, in Atlanta called Nakato and Sarah Blakely was, um, escorted to our hibachi table at Nakato and sat next to me. Sarah Blakely being the founder of Spanx. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. And she was one of my, of course, I mean, she was the biggest inspiration, you know, aside from Oprah. Aside. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, I know her whole story. I know she spent $5,000, mm-hmm. you know, of her savings to start um, Spanx. And that was my sign. I said, I'm not looking back. Like, what are the chances? <laughs> Wait, so you mentioned you were in school. So had you started the process while you were in law school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of filing the patent. I had the idea. Yes, exactly. Wow. I had the idea. Yeah. I hadn't started developing it yet mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to make sure there was, was a good chance that I would actually get the patent right. um, before I uh, started you know, putting money towards development. Got it. Got it. Because I know, yep. you know, let's be honest, Black women, all of us have at some point in time thought, I need like, is there a waterproof cap? Like this is an idea that multiple people have had, but you took it a step further and said, you know what? I want to make sure that I can patent what I am going to create. And before I invest any more resources and what have you into this process. So now, absolutely. fast forward, you're out of law school. What were the first steps you took to get started? And what did it require financially? Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the first step was to find somebody who could sew because it was not me. I could not sew. I didn't have any of the skills necessary to put it together. Um, and so I needed to find contractors. I didn't even know what to call people that make hats. Um, so, uh, doing a lot of research online was kind of the beginning process. Um, I had read in, in certain like business books, you know, go into, uh, look and see what's on the market. So I started reading reviews from 
brain hats that existed. Um, and then I started you know, pulling family and friends and even people after church into a room <laughs> and asking them, like, you know, well, if you, if you if there were a hat that could protect your hair from the rain, like, what would you care about? And so that was the beginning process. And I probably went through three different kind of like consulting companies to help me make it because it's not just, it's not a hat in the traditional sense of hat makers were like, we don't, we wouldn't make this. And so had to even figure out, you know, who to use. And so that process was, you know, a couple of years of um, having to start the process and then let those people go because they weren't necessarily able to help me with my vision the way that I really wanted it to be. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the beginning mm. process. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that because you're right. Not everyone can help you realize the vision, especially when you're doing something outside of the normal oh, creation yeah. that they make. And when you created your prototype, the idea that the um, version that it is today with kind of more room for our hair, right? So you, you can have, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of hair, you can have a whole braided hairstyle, what have you, and still fit into it. Did that evolve over time? Oh, absolutely. The size of it has been a big ordeal um, because you have to factor in the size of someone's head and then the length and volume of their hair. Um, and really, you know, I was like, well, the average shower cap, we don't look for sizes in shower caps. Why are we looking for sizes here? But the the premise for Hairbrella is that your hair, however it is styled, won't be disrupted. So we needed to provide for more space. And, you know, we initially started with one, um, one size, which is more of like what the XL is now. Um, and we found that some women even though it had plenty of room, if they wore their hair short, they wanted the hairbrella to reflect that. So like the fact that it looked like it was hanging, like hair was hanging down when they put it on, they're like, I don't want to wear this. I want it to look like my hair. And I'm like, okay. Like <laughs> I didn't realize people would care about that. So, um, so yeah, we, we've had to, um, I mean, it's been over 60 prototypes over <laughs> the years and wow, over 60, over 60 prototypes. Um, and some of them are iterations on things that, on, on versions that look similar. So if you think about like version 4.7, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but overall there were 60, there's 60 different versions of it. And um, the one that we have today really does take into account the feedback that we got from Kickstarter, which was really the purpose of that campaign. Right. Um, I had 250 to sell and I wanted to get all the feedback that I could. And then I went into another six months of development. Um, so that was really important. You know, the prototype was okay, but then when we went through you know, listening to all those women, we really got a product that I felt like resonated with women because got we it. took into consideration everything they wanted. Right. And let's backtrack yeah. a little bit because I think it's it's really important mm -hmm. for people to understand um, the financial aspects of this, just so you can know what you need mm -hmm. to save up. Right. So, oh, you, yes, you yes, created yes. <laughs> you created that Kickstarter. How much did you raise? Right. And is that what you used to invest in the early like development with different consulting groups and all of that. Talk mm -hmm. us about that financial process. Yes, I apologize. I, I forgot that you asked about the actual money. So the money initially, I was just putting in whatever I had that was extra. And I would say in the year leading up to, well, two years leading up to my job, I probably invested about $60,000 in um, product development. Um, and that was a combination of um, uh, the, you know, the three contractors that I went through contracting companies, um, probably spent, you know, five to $10,000 in, um, developing and, and doing different iterations, buying materials, that sort of thing. Um, and then when I finally found the one that was 
perfect for me and, and really got my vision. Um, you know, spent another 30,000, which also included, you know, small runs. So you want to get, you know, 10 of them made. Um, I'll tell you that initially, uh, each one costs like $52 to make because <laughs> I was paying the, paying the person's hourly rate. Whoa. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and then got it down to $36 between 32 and 36 by Kickstarter. Um, and you know, you, you are able to improve from there, but um, and I didn't have all that raised at one time. This was all my personal money. And in fact, um, there was a, a class action lawsuit that uh, I was paid out on kind of midway through right after I finished like the very first, very ugly prototype. Um, and I just felt like God was giving me more money after I ran out. You know, I spent all that I could. And then, you know, it, it would be an opportunity um, for me to make more money or get more money to keep putting into it. So. Um, in total, it was about 60000 but, you know, that was spread out over two years of just kind of using all my bonuses, keeping my expenses low, um, you know, Got my it. tax that, returns. Yeah, that is very, <laughs> very helpful to know. So then you yep. do the Kickstarter. Why did you do the Kickstarter? I did it only for testing. Um, like I said, I had 250 units. We raised about $16,000. Uh, the goal was 15000 um, my boss from my job actually bought like the first, I think it was hundred units. <laughs> I gave them out to the whole nice. law department. And I was like, oh, great. A what a great job. boss. What? Yes, That's awesome. Right. So, um, so yeah. And we only had 250. I didn't even have the money to invest in getting more than that. And we were not making any money off of them from the pledges. We actually were almost breaking even and then some we were losing money, but it was, an investment because we needed to get it on the heads of all of these women so that they could give us their feedback. So after we sold through the 250, you know, we couldn't sell anymore. And then we uh, went into, you know, testing and, and surveying everybody and getting all their feedback and then back into product development to to make it better. So what kind of feedback did they give you that you used to inform the next generation of the hats? Yeah. So, uh, one big revelation was that um, rain has velocity. So we had a material that like had water, you could sit water on it all day and it would never seep through. But when rain was falling and it was hard, you know, you know, coming down really hard, then it would seep through. And so we learned, you know, under what conditions our material did not work under. <laughs> I hadn't worn it in every climate, so I didn't know that. Um, we didn't realize that um, how snow uh uh, affected it. People told us, you know, this material feels kind of hot. Um, people said, oh, when I tried to wash it, you know, the the visor bent up and I couldn't get it to recover. Um, uh, th there were all kinds of, 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 of types of feedback that we got um, all the way down to the like the size of it. So they really address every aspect of, of the hat. Um, and I, I would say, you know, a hundred of them were really, really yeah, gave us some great feedback. Not everybody mm -hmm. um, was able to to give us that feedback, but um, we took into account everything that they said and and just made iterations on the on the hat itself and and made it something that now you know has extremely you know really really good reviews now, um, less than one percent return rate, and that is a direct um, reflection of all the feedback that we got from those women. That is a really good return rate, and you know what's funny when you were talking about some of the feedback and someone saying the visor got bent up. I imagine them like throwing it in their washing machine, like no, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, what was that mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that's great that you got that feedback. Now, what would you say was the biggest challenge once you've received all that feedback? Like, how do, it sounds to me like almost impossible to make a product that can satisfy all of all of those different needs. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely had to make some, I guess, you know, qualitative assessments of what really mattered and didn't. Um, the things that I heard more than once or twice, I really took into account some things where people being nitpicky and just <laughs> wanted to design their own hat. Right. Um, <laughs> a magic hat. Um, right, exactly. exactly. And some of the things that people were asking for, I'm like, um, so yeah, like for instance, can you make one that protects my hair from being, you know, sweated out in the gym? I'm like, oh, I can That's a different stop. product, ma'am. Okay. Right. <laughs> Coming out of your scalp, we don't really have anything for that. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they, uh, they they were very helpful and we just had to kind of figure out which ones we thought were going to really kind of impact the user experience to the extent that I would rather go without having a solution than to have this problem with this hat. You know what I mean? Um, some things are more cosmetic, some things don't really matter, but other things I felt like uh, were really going to affect whether or not someone would use it and want to tell other people about it. And those were the things we prioritized. And how long did it take you to go from that Kickstarter testing phase to mm-hmm. do a full launch and, you know, launch the website and officially put them up for sale. Oh my gosh. Um, so <laughs> the, we ended the campaign January of 2017. Uh, we uh, put up a e-commerce site like middle of the year around July, I think it was. Um, and you know, sales were trickling in here and there, but one of the biggest issues that came up soon after that was that the material that we used, I sourced out of Atlanta, we bought all of it and the supplier didn't know what it was made of, where he could get more of it from. He was a jobber. So that means that he just gets excess fabric. And I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be unlimited supply. You're always going to get this. He's like, no, that was our last role. And so I went around the country and so did my product development person looking for the material. Couldn't find it. We ended up having to reverse engineer it in China. That process took over a year. Um, And then after that, we needed to get our first full run. So finding a manufacturer who could make it for way less than $32. Yes, uh, that (laughs) That, was my next question. (laughs) (laughs) That took another several months because, you know, when you make something that hasn't been made before, you have to now create a new manufacturing process that is scalable. And that was more than a notion. I didn't realize how much would have to go into that, not only just training people, having them understand how the hat should work, but the machinery that they would need and the components that we would need to source and how those components can be sourced in a way that doesn't drive up our price or affect the weight of shipping. I mean, it was was really incredible (laughs) going through that process. So it wasn't until, honestly, March of 2019 that we had all of the pieces together, meaning we had a manufacturer, we had uh, the the um, ability to uh, produce it and source the materials um, and, and make the right kind of fabric. Um, and then I, I raised a little money to do a rebrand of the site so that we could, you know, look like a legitimate company. Um, and then we launched our first marketing campaign. And that was, you know, another thing we had to figure out how to market rain hats. Right. You don't see rain hat commercials. You don't know how they market it. <laughs> So we had to figure that out too. Um, And so that process, I mean, that's been since 2017 all the way to 2019 um, that we were, you know, we were selling, but not really operating like a fully 
um, you know, equipped company because there were these pieces that would not allow us to really grow. Uh, we were running out of inventory every month. We couldn't keep paying the price we were paying for into the production. So we had to go through that process. And it's interesting that you say that. So what is working now for you as far as marketing? Um, yeah. So marketing, we were doing Facebook ads. Um, I had no clue how to do marketing. And thankfully I was able to uh, have an angel investor who had a hair growth company, hair growth uh, product company. He was making over a hundred thousand um, dollars a month in sales uh, through his e-commerce channel. And I was like, okay, yes, please be an investor and please teach me how to do this. And so we've been focusing on Facebook ads. Uh, I locked myself in a room with him for eight hours uh, every couple of months and started iterating. And once we kind of found the the right copy, the right visuals, which was you know pouring water on a model's head, which seems to be the one that performed the best. Um, at that point, we really had a marketing campaign that had, you know, very high conversion rate. Um, we were able to really uh, resonate with the audience that we knew was interested in the product. Um, and we've been growing, you know, over, it was like 100% month over month, uh, the second part of last year. Um, and, you know, now we're trying to really capitalize on that, ramp up on production. Um, it's, it's kind of been like, this is what you dream of when you first start. A product or right. start a company, but you know the road getting here kind of just felt like wow, like is it ever going to happen? Um, and it's absolutely happening now, but it definitely took a lot to get to this point. Hey guys, it's Nikayla here with a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. The online learning community is offering our listeners two months of free premium membership. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. Right now, Skillshare is such a great resource to have so you can stay inspired, express yourself, and connect to a community of creatives with fascinating classes on topics like how to start a business online, e-commerce essentials, email marketing, and so much more. You can also take non-business classes like drawing or writing, and that can be a great way to help manage stress, practice mindfulness, and feel connected to one another. I recently took a Skillshare class called Context is Key, Social Media Strategy in a Noisy Online World, and I just found it so valuable as a refresher on creating a channel-specific social media strategy for my brand. So as you can see, Skillshare offers classes designed for real life and all of the circumstances that come with it. Creative self-discovery and expression can settle your mind. I know it does for me. And spontaneous acts of creativity can help break up the routine of a day indoors. So Skillshare short classes are a perfect fit for that. And you'll create real projects and get the support of fellow creatives who provide encouragement, communication, and inspiration. So explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro, where you'll get two free months of premium membership. That's two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. I would love to see the, you know, kind of evolution of the prototypes as like one of those oh, like yes. hyperlapse. Is that what they call it? Um, fast speed, because it's cute oh, now. Yes. No, that's a great so idea. Cute. 
do right. that. I have to do that. I'm like, I will this do is that. like a fashion piece now, and it is also useful. So kudos yes, to you yes. for for you know evolving and all of that. And you mentioned angel investors, so let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that as well. Because as you're talking sure. about this process, all I can all I can think about is the amount you have invested, the years that have mm-hmm. passed, and that it's still such a work in progress. So oh, my yeah. question is, how are you funding this? How are you um, paying yourself? <laughs> if right. at all. Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> so I um, uh, ended up getting angel investors uh, after I discovered that we had this issue with the fabric. Okay. Um, and so I needed to have them help me invest in reverse engineering this fabric and getting our initial production run. And so uh, Nathaniel Bronner was my first investor uh, of the Bronner Brothers. Um, and then shortly after that, you know, uh, I met uh, Ron Love and Tyron Spear, who I just spoke about um, at the gathering spot here in Atlanta. Um, so the gathering spots, you know, where all the entrepreneurs are hanging out and end up meeting them. And then um, also, Jewel Burks at the same time, who uh, sold her company Part Pick to Amazon a couple years ago, and so um, they were kind of my initial investors. And they, uh, while we weren't making the kind of sales that would <laughs> demonstrate to them that they were going to make their investment back, um, they did take a chance on helping me get to the point where we could fully. Um, market and and see the potential of of Hairbrella go forward. And so, you know, the investment amounts were between, you know, 10,000 and 40,000 and then there was a mix of, you know, some equity financing and some were loans. All in all, I've raised about 170,000 um again with that mix. Uh so none of them, you know, were mortgaging their house to to invest. Uh, but it was definitely, you know, enough for us to keep uh, keep going right. and stay afloat. And then personally, so I was none of that was paying for my expenses. <laughs> I was doing um, consulting and still doing legal work, uh, primarily IP trademark applications. Um, and I, uh, I, my my former boss, who is amazing, clearly, uh, gave me the opportunity to just basically uh, help. They, they needed help with a project that I was working on when I was at my job. And they were like, hey, just work from home. If you could just help us through, uh, you know, bill us your hourly rate, whatever that is. And so I was able to you know take a few hours uh, every day and, and work um, for my old job um, and then continue working on um, Hairbrella as well. And so I would say maybe four or five months out of the year um, in two of those years, I was still doing some consulting and legal work. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the time I was, uh, just building, building hairbrella and then doing consulting on the side as I could. That is so good to know. I, I love the fact that, you know, Jewel, who has been in the side house of pro guest chair has, is now paying it forward in terms of, uh, supporting, helping, educating new entrepreneurs. And I've heard lots of great things about the gathering spot, um, that co-working yep. community in Atlanta. And, you know, yep. it's good to know. Sometimes when we hear about raising and all this other stuff, we think it has to be, I shouldn't say we think it has to be, because I don't know what everyone thinks, but you, people tend to publicize millions of fundraising, like, oh, they raised a million, but what you really need to get your business by is often way less than that. And you are, you're doing it and you're now starting to see those results because of the investment in studying the Facebook advertising and sitting down and doing that. So when do you think the business will really start to um, sustain itself and be profitable? 
We are at the point now where um, our cost of acquisition, so marketing costs and the cost of the product um, uh, is now less than what we charge for it. So it, uh, we're, we, we see the way to profitability. What we're um, focusing on now is scaling up production. So I went to China a couple months ago to kind of figure out what our, our production capacity um, was uh, we're still running out of inventory. I mean, we sold over a hundred thousand um, dollars both in November and December, and ran out of inventory on the twenty second. Oh no! Um, and yeah, yeah. So we're trying to get production going, uh, you know, at scale. Um, we we feel confident that we have the marketing piece figured out, so we can get that at scale. And so um, we're raising so that we can um, fully max out the the potential. Um, we have some exciting opportunities with Good Morning America coming up, <laughs> so um, and also um, Essence Women in Hollywood, and so there's there's a lot of growth that is happening now, um, and we have to have the money to run that because you have to have all the inventory ahead of time, and you've also got to be able to spend um, those marketing dollars to pull those customers in. So, um, in terms of it being profitable, it it will be um, this year uh, based on what we're projecting. Um, we're just trying to make sure that we've got the runway in terms of cash to truly um, get there. But I-, I won't say the hardest part is over, but <laughs> uh, we definitely have something that we can grow um, tremendously at this point, you know, kind of having all those pieces in place. You know, I just love hearing your story, Tracy, and I'm really, really rooting for you. Investors would be silly Thank not so to much. jump on this bandwagon, because not bandwagon, <laughs> but on this boat before it pops, because oh, yeah. it is just such a good idea and so useful. But then you bring up such important considerations that product-based business have to think about. I would never think that you would run out of inventory in terms of fabric. Like you really start reverse engineering the process and realizing um, it's great that we have demand, but now we have to make sure our factory has enough fabric. Where do they get fabric from? Who sews it? Like who, how does it end up in the factory and, and at what pace does it do that? So is it a matter of where if you produce at scale, you have to move to a larger fabric? Do you have to trademark the fabric? Like how does that whole thing work? Yeah. Um, so when I went to China, I went to every factory from the raw materials to the dyeing factory to the actual um, place where they apply the waterproof laminate okay. um, on the fabric and why it's so important and why this was so particular is because I needed it to be waterproof and not feel like a shower cap. Mm. I needed I needed to drape like a beanie. It needed to feel like a hat that you would want to wear, not like a shower cap. So um in, in figuring out that process, we needed to do it where it could be at any scale. And that's where we have it now. So we can produce as much as we want at this point. But that took us finding the, you know, this is the same factory that makes the bedding for like some of the biggest bedding companies um, and, and upholstery companies in the world. So um, capacity on the fabric isn't a problem, but we have to also kind of be at a level that would warrant you know, basically their MOQ, their their minimum order quantity. So we have to be selling really well to keep them on as a vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's what we've had to kind of get to a point of. And then in terms of the the cut and sew uh, uh, factory, same thing. You know, we want to be able to produce as much as we can, but you know, they're gonna they're gonna do it for the company that pays right, them right. <laughs> and who has who needs the capacity. You know, needs all of the um, the the capacity that they offer. And so we kind of had to grow up and kind of get to a point of sales that we could warrant saying, Hey, you know, we're going to need X amount of units for this year. Can you guys give us a great price and basically make us 
the one company that you are you're working for. And so um, that's what we're doing now. Uh, and, and feel confident, you know, we kind of know what we can get to in sales this year based on that capacity. This is so exciting. And what does the patent cover as far as can you prevent this factory? I know this is something that a lot of people get concerned about, too. Like, can you prevent sure. this factory from making similar hats for someone else? Yeah. So everybody knows, you know, there's a, a huge uh, issue with, with that in China. Um, it's kind of like people take the risk, mm-hmm. honestly, uh, to do that. Um, gratefully, I have um, a company that is kind of my quality assurance and eyes and ears on the ground out there um, that managed the factory. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where the factory is incentivized they're the only ones that create it. It's a brand new product. You don't see it anywhere else. They are incentivized to protect the hat because if they don't, I know who produced it. <laughs> right. And then all of that money that is paying for all of the things. That, I mean, I, I really enjoyed meeting the factory owner and all of the managers and all that. And we had lunch and did all that stuff. And I was like, Wow. I, I even looked around like, what else are you guys producing? They weren't producing for anybody else. It's just us. So they would be risking that um, and, and all of the money they make month over month um, by doing that. Uh, so uh, we keep we, we're building that relationship. Like I said, the, the company or, or my product quality manager has a very strong relationship with them. Um, and, and we are building that relationship such that it is mutually beneficial for everybody to protect everybody. <laughs> um, but if, if it were that, you know, someone like, for instance, we did see a, a website go up for an address in China. They said they were selling the hair umbrella. Um, I actually don't think they were ever going to send it because we did try and order one, never came. Um, but my product development guy drove to that address and like shut them down. <laughs> yes. You need that body. You need muscle yes. on the ground, y'all. We- <laughs> Yes, we have police on the ground. They don't even know it over there. Um, So, so yeah, that's, you know, but it's still a vulnerability that I think about. And, you know, it's one of those things I'm trusting. I'm I'm trusting and doing all that I can do, um, you know, as a lawyer Mm -hmm. and also just, you know, protecting something I've invested so much time and energy in. Um, But one one other cool thing about it that, you know, if if an entrepreneur can come up with a product idea that is hard to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hebrella is a really yes, hard you can product hear to it make. In how many and years <laughs> you've invested in this? How many prototypes? Guys, yeah, this is not easy. Right. Yeah. Right. And so finding all of the components that I had to find to get it right. to where it is now, like, you know, it would have to be that factory that would do it. Um, but other than that, I think it would be best for someone to spend their time doing something else and trying to copy. Yes, yes. <laughs> trying to copy Hebrella. Right. So we'll protect it and, and grow it and, you know, really want to focus on the brand too, so that people always know that this is the Hairella in case anybody tries it. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to focus on that too much. I know it's a vulnerability. I just want to focus on making Hairella as successful as it can be. And I'm going to have to trust God with the rest. Indeed. And, you know, I saw a quote the other day um, in terms of that, you know, having peace of mind during times like this, where you make something so great that People want to copy, right? Copying is allegedly the best form of flattery. I don't know about that, but you know. (laughs) Right. Uh, I can accept other 
some other form. <laughs> However, I saw this quote and it says it's from Stephanie Fleming of the Happy Planner. It's, um, she said this on the Bean Boss uh, podcast that if someone is copying you or following you too closely, the closest they're ever going to be is one step behind. And that's, True. you know, that's comforting for me because they literally have to wait on your next move. Then they got to spend time reverse engineering that move. And by the time, exactly, you know, by the time they do that, you're like another step ahead. So. So I'm rooting for you. Go. So now yep. tell us what's next for Hairbrella. You mentioned some exciting things like Good Morning America might be coming on. Um, what else? Yes. Yeah. So we're scheduled to do Good Morning America in March um, for their women's history kind of special um, deals and steals um, segment. So that's going to be incredible. Um, we're doing, uh, we're going to be included in the Essence uh, Women in Hollywood gift bag, which is in February. And we are in talks with one of the country's biggest airlines um, to incorporate the hairbrella into their uniformed employees' uh, um, uniforms, essentially, uh, for their above and below the wing uh, employees. So those that are um, you know, out on the runway and those that are, um, you know, uh, flight attendants, et cetera, uh, which would be a huge contract. <laughs> so we are really excited about the opportunity to do that. And there's a lot of growth um, possible with, you know, uh, wholesale accounts for salons, uh, blow dry bar. Um, and we, uh, you know, also group sales like a, you know, cheerleading and drill team. Um, and so we're, we're now, trying to build out our wholesale kind of B2B part of the business, um, taking advantage of the television. We haven't done any press, anything. So this will be the first year that we get into that. Um, and then uh, growing our online sales. Uh, another big thing that we're trying to do too is we have customers in different countries that are paying $20, $30 for shipping. So we're um, setting up distribution in those countries, starting out with the UK, Australia, um, in India, which has a huge monsoon season during our summer. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so that, that market, those markets are ones that we will be, um, you know, kind of standing up over the next 12 months. Uh, lots of work. That raises a question for me. You know, I always yep. assume that everything is for me, <laughs> but <laughs> this hat is, is actually not limited to black women. Like anybody with hair can use it. So how do you right, manage, right. how do you go about targeting when you think of who you're trying to target, who you're trying to get in front of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've gone back and forth with that. Um, so our website, the majority of those customers, you know, look like you and me. Uh, but when I start selling on Amazon and started, you know, I, I kind of like go and stalk those customers, try to find them online and see who they were. And I found out that about 60% of those women were not black. Hmm. Um, and even down to one of my customers, yeah, she actually bought on the website um, and wanted to invest and she's Asian. Like I was talking to her and I was trying to figure out how am I going to ask her if she is <laughs> white or black or what? <laughs> It was so awkward, but I finally kind of I found a way to ask her. And she was like, oh, no, I'm Asian. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, when you see rain hats, you know, the models on Amazon or anywhere, or you just think about the rainwear industry. Right. All is made in China and all the models are Asian. It's like, no, she was like rain hats, ponchos, et cetera, are bigger in China in Asia in general than anywhere else. Wow. Um, so she's like, this market is going to be huge for you whenever you're ready. So. Right now, what I'm trying to make sure I do is, you know, stay focused on the market that we know we're serving and who really 
you know, is, is responding to it. And, and of course, black women have never had a solution. So I want to make sure that we are um, really reaching that audience. But there are so many other verticals and so many other uh, women, even the blow dry market, you know, the, the women that go get their hair at the dry bar or whatever. Right. Um, those are women that have been looking for a solution as well. Um, so, you know, rain impacts our hair differently. But one thing is true. It never helps our hair. <laughs> it never helps our hair to stay the way that we wanted it to be. If you've taken any time to style it, water is what will ruin it. And so we want to make sure that we're serving you know, women everywhere who have different needs for their hair, but are trying to protect it from the rain. Got it. So now we are going to transition into the lightning round. You just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? That would be podcasts, <laughs> especially this one. But in uh, leading up to leading my, leaving my job, I listened to a podcast about a founder every single day. Mm. And that really helped me to build my confidence um, and also kind of made me feel like I understood what it took to be successful. And that was really, really important for me um, leading up to leaving my job. Oh, good to know. Um, number yep. two, what's been the best business book that has directly helped you with your business? Uh, the 10X Rule by Grant Cardone. Um, and that book really kind of kicked things into gear for me in terms of the work ethic and the amount of action I would need to take to be successful. Um, so I would highly recommend the 10X rule. All righty. Number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your daily routine? Meditation in the morning. <laughs> I literally feel like I haven't brushed my teeth if I haven't had, had my time for meditation. So that's every single day. Okay. And then number four, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business? Reading. Um, yeah. Reading every day. Uh, I have a whole slew of, of business books and, and listening to Audible, um, but reading and being able to revisit those notes um, and kind of implementing what I've learned has been huge. Okay. And then finally, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? I would say, you know, it is absolutely possible. Um, I think we struggle between what is kind of a leap of faith and what is being silly. <laughs> and I think that if you can really put down a plan, I call it a, a vision map. And if you've read uh, Mentor by Millionaire, or, there are several books that talk about goal setting. But if you really kind of back out of the result that you want and and Mark it down, you know, what are my goals? What are the tasks that are going to get there? What are the things that I know how to do? And what are the things I'm going to have to have someone else do for me? You will feel more confident and you will actually get to that result. I found that after I had written down the plan, the things that I didn't know how to solve for started showing up. So I think it's really important to get started, to do all that you can until you can't anymore. And then I believe that the resources show up. Um, and also when you when you are planning just know <laughs> that you won't see the way all the way to the end. You just need to see up into that first step. So, um, you know, leaving my job, I gave myself a deadline, but I think that um, while, while going through that planning process and seeing things show up, I was able to build the confidence to keep going um, and finally get to a point where I have left my job. I'm not doing any more consulting. <laughs> I'm fully reliant on Hairbrella as my full-time income. Um, and, and that journey has just been, you know, one foot in front of the next. I love that. That is such 
impactful advice to end this episode with. And before we go, just let everyone know how they can connect with you and get their hands on Hairbrella. <laughs> yes. So uh, you can find me on Instagram at Tracy Pickett Esquire, T-R-A-C-E-Y-P-I-C-K-E-T-T-E-S-Q. Um, and then at Hairbrella on Facebook, Instagram, um, all the platforms, Twitter. Um, and you can purchase Hairbrella on uh, uh, hairbrella.com or on Amazon. And uh, if you use Side Hustle Pro 20, Ooh, you can get a, a discount. <laughs> For 20% off your order. Yay. Yep. So that was Side Hustle Pro, you guys, at hairbrella.com for 20% off your order. That was a surprise to me. That is so kind of you, Tracy. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing here. Like this, a podcast like this is literally a, a dream for someone like me. Um, I'm trying to, you know, transition. I'm sure it's going to be uh, great for all the, the women that are listening to it. Yes. So, so there you have it, you guys. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six-foot Saturday newsletter at sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter. When you sign up, you will receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon.